Yarn. Yarn 19. How not to be a spy. This story is in two episodes. Episode 2. Are you an airman? I'm a German airman, yes. I had to bail out. I was still wearing my Luftwaffe blue smock and jump overalls. This is Hermann Gertz. Gertz parachuted into Ireland in the summer of 1940 on a secret mission on behalf of Nazi Germany. When I landed, I had no idea where I was, but I suspected I was of course. His secret mission and his extended time in Ireland has gained almost mythic status. This is the true story of his adventures. It's full of espionage, ridiculous plans and larger than life characters. Years later, Gertz would write about his time in Ireland in a set of serialised articles for the Irish Times newspaper. By then, a long time had passed since the end of the war. And he was a man with a reputation for bending the truth. My apologies. <laughs> That's an obvious coming to life inside of me. References to Gertz also appear in the biographies of several prominent Irish figures he crossed paths with. And in 2003, the British Secret Service opened their files on the spy to the public. I'll be using all these sources to untangle the tale and retell it to you. The characters you'll hear are played by actors. Some of their dialogue has been dramatised, but they're all based on real people and actual situations. I felt a deep sickening feeling in my stomach. My coded diary, my US counterfeit currency and my jacket and hat would surely be discovered by the authorities. Not to mention the map for Plan Kathleen. I was distraught, but Mr. Hayes seemed strangely resigned to it all. After the Civil War, the Gardaí launched an intensive surveillance campaign on the IRA. They had identified most of its key members and even had several informants within the IRA feeding them information. The IRA's biggest threat at this point came from the Gardaí. When the Gardaí interned or executed any suspected IRA members, the IRA retaliated in eye-for-an-eye eye attacks. Back in Stephen Held's house, the Gardaí quickly realised they hadn't just interrupted a routine IRA meeting. Gert's notebooks were full with lines of random numbers and letters. The ciphered diary contained a full account of his movements and interactions in Ireland but it would have to be decoded first. The map with the words Plan Kathleen sprawled across it must have been even more intriguing to the authorities. And who was the mystery man that the IRA were meeting with? The Gardaí decided to pass the information on to the Irish Military Intelligence Wing, nicknamed G2. Founded in the mid-1920s, G2 spent much of its early efforts combating anti-treaty IRA. During World War II, although Ireland had a policy of military neutrality, G2 formed secret agreements with the United Kingdom's intelligence section, MI5, and the United States Office of Strategic Services, the OSS. It's the predecessor to the CIA. During this period, G2 intercepted German naval and aerial communications through listening stations located across Ireland and shared the information with Allied forces. The exact number of employees working in G2 at the time is unknown, but it was run by Colonel Daniel Dan Bryan. When Dan Bryan was handed Gert's ciphered notebook, he knew the perfect man to decode it. Richard Hayes, or Doc Hayes, was the director of the National Library in Dublin. 
But he had a secret second job that no one knew about until decades after the war, not even his family. Richard Hayes was G2's head cryptologist. While running the National Library, he simultaneously led a small group of dedicated codebreakers. Their primary mission was to decipher intercepted German messages. But now, they had an actual coded diary to work with, and with the help of the Gardaí, they could keep tabs on the movements of an active Nazi spy. After they evaded the Gardaí, Stephen Hayes dumped Gertz in another IRA safe house and drove off. I didn't see Hayes for quite a bit of time after that. He was lying low, I suspect. I was moved from safe house to safe house every few days. It was an awful way to live. And the IRA was still no closer to finding me a radio or even someone who would send messages. But I took the matter into my own hands through a stroke of pure serendipity and cunning on my part. I was staying in a safe house in South Dublin. I was getting tired of being such a burden on the women of each safe house, most of whom were widows or spinsters. So I sought out an establishment that could launder my only suit and shirt and thus free up the woman of the house from doing so. Well, to my amazement, I found the perfect establishment, a five-minute stroll down the road. It was called the Swastika Laundry. I couldn't believe it. The Swastika Laundry was an Irish-owned business founded in 1912, located on the Shelburne Road, Balls Bridge. Their Swastika logo and name continued in use until the premises closed in 1987. When I inquired as to the origins of the name to the clerk inside, she explained it had nothing to do with any affinity to the National Socialist Party. That got us talking. It transpired that the clerk's brother was a keen radio transmitter hobbyist. And for a meager fee, he would be willing to send and receive messages for me. Well, any messages I sent, I diligently ciphered and those I received, I had to decipher by using the key assigned only to me by my German high command. So I thought, this was perfect. The radio operator had no way of reading what was being sent or received. By now, Richard Doc Hayes and his team had managed to decipher Gertz's diary and they were sharing the information with British MI5. Then, G2 had an idea. If Gertz needed to send messages, why don't they provide him with a radio operator? That way they could pose as his German handlers and pry even more information out of him. The Irish government and G2's highest priority was to quash the IRA. Why not employ Gertz as an informant? The best part about this plan was Gertz would never even know he was a mole. He'd just think he was following orders from his superiors in Germany. I had finally made contact with my command, and by all accounts they were very much glad to hear from me. I started transmitting all of my findings. In fact, they were so happy with my progress that they thought fit to promote me to the rank of major. My mission was indeed very important to them. The more messages Gert sent, the more questions G2 asked him, mostly about the IRA structure and movements but they also asked him about any potential threats to the British. I had hoped that they would request my return, but each message they sent back asked me to obtain more information. So I continued my mission. The G2 dutifully passed this information on to the British, 
The head of MI5, Cecil Little, even wrote and personally thanked the head of G2, Dan Bryan, for all the intel. British Intelligence Communications to G2 Dublin, 24th of May, 1940. Dear Mr. Bryan, it's with great appreciation that we received today your latest deciphered communications with the German spy Gortz. It's quite the masterstroke by you chaps in taking the opportunity to pose one of your agents as Goetz radio operator. We also send thanks for the great work your team has done in breaking the German cipher in order to read the messages and send your own back. We all had a bit of a giggle when you decided to provoke Goetz. If he keeps this up, you'll no doubt make him general before the war is out. I look forward to seeing how this source progresses. Yours sincerely, Mr. Little, MI5. The more embedded Goetz became with his IRA, captors, as he began to call them, the more paranoid he was becoming. He was having more and more near misses with Garda Special Branch, and more and more of the IRA's men were being captured. Like Stephen Hayes, Gertz now suspected there was an informant working against him. So he thought he should distance himself from the IRA. At the start I was staying in safe houses arranged by the IRA, but these seemed to keep being raided. So I organized my own lodgings for friends I had accrued. Friends? What friends? They were all good patriots. Most of them had lost husbands or brothers in 1916, the Tan War or the Civil War. So they were all women? Unmarried women? What does that matter? Why is everyone's mind always in the gutter? They were true Irish patriots. They passed on my messages and drove me to meetings and ensured I was never outside alone. He may not have been staying in IRA safe houses any longer, but he was still in close contact with the IRA's chief. Gertz was trying to carry on with his mission objective, to get the IRA to concentrate on British targets while simultaneously playing down the possibility of organizing a German invading force. Gertz was feeling the pressure. The chief kept pressing me on whether Berlin was going to commit to the plan. I stalled. I told him that the plan was the subject of a lively discussion in Berlin but that they needed more military intelligence about Ulster before the plan could be executed. The IRA chief's appearance seemed to deteriorate more each time I met him. I think from alcohol and fear. He insisted on meeting me at another safe house one evening. He brought with him some new recruits. They weren't much more than boys, really. Uh, here, girls. <laughs> what do you think of the new lads, huh? I had to retire a few of the others. There are rats everywhere. Whisper, whisper, whisper. They're all asses. Special Branch has our lads running scared. So the only way is to scare them back. Yes, I wanted to talk to you about that. Wouldn't it make more sense to concentrate your efforts on military targets in the north, rather than killing Gadi down here? They're killing us, lad! Would you wake up? We're not gonna lie down and take it. It's my job to hold this army together. Then I just put it to him flatly. I had my suspicions all along, but dared not say it until now. I'd lost all interest in my own safety and just said it. I think you're the informer, Hayes. How is it they haven't caught you yet? Your sloppy conduct thus far would surely warrant it, but you keep evading capture while your men do not. Suddenly, a pure madness appeared in his eyes. He reached for one of his men's revolvers. I ran from the house before he could get a shot off. As soon as I crossed the street, I saw a group of special branch officers close in on the house. I was in no doubt at all who the informant was then. Gertz's accusation stuck. It sent a ripple of doubt through the already paranoid IRA ranks. 
more accusations and apparent evidence of Hayes' treachery surfaced among the membership. Stephen Hayes was dragged up in front of an IRA court. He was court-martialed for treason by his comrades and would have been executed, but he bought himself some time by composing an enormously long confession. Here's a short extract. I decided on making this confession after I was made aware of the verdict of the court-martial. I further affirm that this confession of facts is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and has been made voluntarily by me. Hayes managed to escape the IRA in September 1941, and he handed himself in to the Gardaí for protection. After fleeing a gun-wielding Hayes, Gertz was in shock. Who could he trust? I didn't know what to do. So I made my way back to Wicklow, to the woman who looked after me that first day in the grand house. I hiked all night, taking cover where I could. I was delighted to see the house again, but when I got there, I was shocked at the sight of the guardie trundling past me on their way out of the estate. I hid in the bushes until the next morning when the family dog alerted the children to my presence. They called out for the woman minding them. Helena Maloney, was left behind at Lara House to look after Ischel's two children. The 58-year-old woman was a friend of the family and had probably heard all about Major Gertz. So she wasn't at all surprised by his visit. So you're the man who's caused all this trouble? Where is Mrs. Stewart? Did you not see from your hedge? She's been taken away by the guards. But what for? For harbouring a spy, you Egypt. What do you think? I'm terribly sorry. Mrs. Francis Stewart was remanded in custody under the Offences Against the State Act 1939. She was taken to Bray Guider Station for questioning. Items of clothing found during the raid of Stephen Hell's house were traced back to her account at Switzer's department store. The shop receipt was left in Gert's jacket pocket. When asked to confirm her name for the record, she stated, You know who I am. Everyone knows who I am. When asked, for whom did you purchase the clothes, she stated, An old literary friend of both mine and my husband. I did not know of any political connections he may have. Now that I realise from your questions that there is some suspicion attached to the clothing, I think it would not be loyal of me to divulge his name. Ischelt was released two days after her arrest without charge. Back at Lara House, Helena Maloney was probably wondering what to do with the German spy. He couldn't stay at the Stuart residence, that's for sure, but she wasn't going to kick him out either. Ischelt wouldn't stand for that. Maloney was a Republican, a devout Labour activist and a former member of Cumann Amman, the Irish Women's Council. Known as Emer or Chick to her friends, Maloney was a close friend of Ischel's mother, Maud. It was Maud who activated her interest in republicanism. I saw Maud speak when I was a young woman. She was so inspiring. I knew I'd follow her anywhere. I was drawn to the struggle from then on. I stormed Dublin Castle with James Connolly in 1916. They said women were only good for sending messages and being nurses. They expected us to run out in the open carrying messages, while the men are hiding behind sandbags with guns. 
A bullet doesn't care if you're a man, woman or child, does it? No. I stormed in with the rest of them. When they executed Connolly, I was devastated. But it felt like it was worth something. What we were doing then, you know? I was away on holiday when I heard about what they came back here with in 21. The treaty. <laughs> Rubbish is all it was. I was heartbroken. It was all for nothing. And then came the horrible war. I wanted no part of it. We used to march up Sackville Street for prisoners' welfare. And the big army lads in their new fancy uniforms used to push us around, drive us down the street. Cowards. On their bicycles. Piddling panzers, we'd call them. And now we've this shower in Dublin Castle, all about the new state. They've forgotten what we were fighting for in the proclamation. Equality, respect, compassion. Go on there, ladies, get back in the kitchen. Don't be getting any more notions. But now we're neutral, so it's grand. No more Irish lads are dying. Well, that's a con. You need only look at the death notices in the paper. There seems to be a lot of young local lads dying in boating accidents in the North Atlantic. That's all they're allowed to say about this war. We should get you out of here. I don't want any more visits from the guards. She decided to take me to a secluded beach hut she knew of in British Bay. But before we set off, she insisted I be disguised as a woman so as not to draw attention. She further ordered that when I get to the hut, if I needed to take the air outside, that I should don my female disguise so onlookers would assume it was her. It was odd walking along the beach in a frock and lady's hat, but it did me some good to take in the fresh sea air. It also allowed me some time to think about whether I should continue the mission here or return home. With the arrest of Isholt on his mind, not to mention the capture of Stephen Held and various other IRA members, Gertz decided he had meddled enough. He went about planning his exit from Ireland. He told the IRA that he needed to get back to Germany so he could argue the merits of Plan Kathleen in person. The IRA agreed to help. They sent me down to Kerry, near Trolley, where they had arranged for a small fishing boat to be at my disposal. The idea was to make a solo sailing to occupied France or Spain. The IRA men in Kerry were quite the well-organized outfit, much better in fact than any I'd encountered in Dublin. They waved me off from the rowing boat, but about a mile out to sea, I saw a line of British minesweepers stretched across the horizon line. The searchlights flickered in my direction. There was no way to avoid them, so I had to return to the bay. G2 wasn't about to let Gertz leave so easily, so once again they contacted MI5 and they arranged for British Navy vessels to be in the vicinity. Gertz was distraught when he returned to Dublin. He considered giving himself up. He had been on the run now for almost 18 months, with not much to show for it. Against his original orders, Gertz contacted Edward Hempel, the German ambassador to Ireland, for help. But Hempel, fearing a diplomatic incident, 
wanted nothing to do with them. Hempel offered Gertz the use of a small sailing boat, but that was it. He refused to use any of his diplomatic powers and told Gertz never to contact the German embassy again. Gertz was on his own. Then during his darkest moments, quite out of the blue, Gertz received a visitor who offered to completely change his fortune. A tall, well-presented man called Vonde, flanked by two military men. They looked like brothers, but in fact they were cousins, both high-ranking officers in the Irish Free State Army. The tall man introduced himself first. So you're the famous spy we've been hearing about. I'm General Owen O'Duffy. Owen O'Duffy was in his early 50s with sharp features and piercing eyes. Originally from County Monaghan, he was a prominent figure in the Ulster IRA during the Irish War of Independence. He was one of the Irish Republicans who, along with Michael Collins, accepted the Anglo-Irish Treaty and fought as a general in the Irish Civil War on the pro-treaty side against the IRA. After the Civil War ended, O'Duffy became the commissioner of the recently formed Garda Shikona. He insisted on a Catholic ethos to distinguish the Gardaí from its predecessors. He regularly told members of the force that they were not just men working an ordinary job, but policemen fulfilling their religious duty. He was also a vocal opponent of alcohol in the force, instructing Gardaí to avoid it at all costs. When Eamon de Valera became Taoiseach in 1933, he dismissed O'Duffy as Gardaí commissioner, probably because there were rumours circulating that O'Duffy had proposed staging a coup rather than letting de Valera and his administration take charge. O'Duffy became the first leader of the newly formed Fine Gael party and he established the party's own private guard. An admirer of the Italian leader Benito Mussolini, O'Duffy's guard force adopted symbols of European fascism such as the straight-armed Roman salute and a distinctive blue uniform. It was not long before they became known as the blue shirts, similar to the Italian black shirts and the German brown shirts. In 1933, a parade was planned by the Blue Shirts in Dublin to commemorate Michael Collins and Arthur Griffith, both of whom who had died 11 years earlier. De Valera feared another coup attempt. He banned the parade and placed Gardaí outside key locations. The Blue Shirts were declared an illegal organisation. 600 men and women members of the Young Ireland Association, or Blue Shirts, are on parade at Inchicore, County Dublin. The wearing of the Blue Shirts has always been banned, and so it is today. Civic guards hold up the procession and inform the parade that they must wear overcoats over their uniforms. O'Duffy announced his intentions to lead the Blue Shirts as an independent movement. Women also wearing the forbidden colour form a large section of the parade, marching along in great style, following the male division. O'Duffy was motivated by his devout anti-communism and a will to defend Catholicism. He organised an Irish brigade to fight for Franco in the Spanish Civil War. O'Duffy's men saw little fighting and were sent home by Franco, returning in June 1937. Home from the war, and back to Old Ireland come Franco's Irish volunteers, 633 of them. A few injured, but the big majority unscathed. The Irish brigade was raised by General O'Duffy, who for a welcome home had to submit to rigid customs examination. His blue shirt movement fizzled out, and O'Duffy became a figure of ridicule. O'Duffy and Gertz were both relegated to the fringe both fighting for respect 
and the restoration of their former glory. His flaming passion impressed me right away. We have to stop the disgusting spread of Bolshevism, secularism and immorality. I have fought my whole life for a Christian free Ireland. And I fought for a free Christian Spain. The only way we'll be free is by military dictatorship. Not with the IRA that Germany should make a deal. No, it is with the Irish Free State Army. I wasn't expecting that. These two gentlemen are leaders of thousands of well-trained and armed men willing to fight for a free and moral United Ireland. And there are more like us among the members of Dáil Air, and I can tell you, De Valera won't know what hit him. What exactly are you proposing, General? We assemble the whole of the Free State Army and liberate the six counties in the name of God and Ireland. Then we'll establish a Christian fascist state. Throw out Dev and his neutrality and then we ally with yourselves. We can even send a Green Division over to help you fight the Bolsheviks. <laughs> what do you think of that? Well, that's quite the offer. For something of that magnitude, I need to get back to Germany and propose it in person, of course. All right, so. Uh, the lads here have access to any military airfield in the country. We'll get you a plane. I was delighted. After almost two years on the run, I was going home. And I was going home with something of great influence to the war. But G2 were keeping tabs on Ono Duffy, too. De Valera probably felt the need to keep one eye on the unpredictable character. They tracked O'Duffy's every move. Notes taken by G2 include his medical appointments, his unpaid off-license tab, and their suspicions that he was a homosexual. When G2 learned that Gertz was associating with O'Duffy, they finally decided to close in on the famous Nazi spy. Officers raided Gertz's safe house and arrested him before he could take up O'Duffy's offer of an airplane. This time, I didn't get away. I suspect a part of Gertz might have been relieved. I spent the rest of the war in a prison. Gertz was initially taken to Arbor Hill Prison in Dublin. He was later transferred to Athlone, where he spent the next four years. Gertz's German commanders had not heard from him since the day he left Berlin. They were totally unaware of his activities in Ireland. This is London Court. Here is a new flash. The German radio has just announced Hitler is dead. I repeat that, the German radio has just announced that Hitler is dead. When Adolf Hitler died in 1945, in a further attempt to highlight Ireland's neutrality, the Taoiseach Eamon de Valera signed the Book of Condolence and personally visited Ambassador Hempel at the German embassy. The Irish government said they were following the usual protocol on the death of a head of state. No other Western European democracies followed Ireland's example. The visit caused a storm of protest in the United States and in the other allied countries. And we left the de Valera government to frolic 
with the Germans and later with the Japanese representatives to their heart's content. De Valera also denounced the emerging reports from the recently discovered Bergen-Belsen concentration camp in Germany. I have just returned from the Belsen concentration camp. 4,250 are acutely ill or dying of virulent disease. 25,600, three quarters of them women, are either ill from lack of food or are actually dying of starvation. In the last few months alone, 30,000 prisoners have been killed off or allowed to die. He called the reports a possible genocide, anti-national propaganda. This may not have been out of disbelief, but rather another attempt to double down on his neutrality. De Valera didn't want to condemn one side's wartime activity over the others. When the war was over, I got out. I was keen to stay in Ireland. Gertz moved back to Dublin to stay with the O'Farrells, a pair of sisters who had put him up for a time during his 18-month evasion. G2 and the Irish government's surveillance of the former spy ceased. But in a stroke of pure coincidence, Gertz started going to the National Library's reading room every day. The workplace of Richard Doc Hayes, the man who deciphered all of Gertz's messages. Richard Hayes couldn't resist striking up a conversation with Gertz one day. He later wrote a letter to his colleague, Mr. Little, the head of MI5, detailing the interaction. Mr. Little. Her Gertz, who is now free in Dublin, has begun to read all day in the National Library. As was bound to happen sooner or later, I walked bang into him yesterday. This morning, I took him out for a coffee. Outwardly, he said he was doing well, but he seemed depressed. He also mentioned that there were rumours that he was to be deported back to Germany. He was distraught at the thought of this. He feared being captured by the Russians. In a chilling tone, he said, whatever happens, they will never get me. Of course, he was still none the wiser that I was the lead agent surveilling him for almost two years, so in that moment, he treated me as a friend. I almost felt sorry for him. He seems very alone. Yours ever, Doc Hayes. In the years following the end of the war, as more reports emerged about the Holocaust, the Irish government was keen to display solidarity with the Jewish people and to show condemnation for anti-Semitism on the international stage at least. A proposal to admit a hundred Jewish orphans from Bergen-Belsen into Ireland was initially blocked, but later granted after de Valera's personal intervention. We shall endeavor to render thanks to God by playing a Christian part in helping so far as a small nation can to bind up some of the gaping wounds of suffering humanity. Perhaps this was the Taoiseach's way of atoning for his anti-national propaganda comment. The Irish government was also coming under increasing pressure to condemn any prominent Irish Nazi sympathisers and to deport any German nationals that had ties to the Nazi party. So once again, the spotlight shone on Major Hermann Goertz. I will not willingly go back to Germany or into the hands of the communists. I'd sooner join the fate of your great martyrs Aliens branch detectives re-arrested Goertz on April 12th, 1947 with six other Germans and held him in Mountjoy prison under a deportation order. He was given parole by the Minister for Justice for two days. When he checked in on his local Garda station, he was told that his parole had been extended for another week. 
A week later, Gertz reported to the aliens office in Dublin Castle at 9.50am. He expected to be granted a further extension to his parole. To his dismay, he was told that he was being deported by plane to Germany that afternoon. Gertz stared in disbelief at the detective officers. I see. Might I take a minute to smoke my pipe before we go? He was granted this request by the officers. Then suddenly, he took his hand from his trouser pocket, swiftly removed his pipe from between his lips and slipped a small glass vial into his mouth. That is none of your business. One of the guards sprang at Gertz as he crushed the glass with his teeth. The officer got his hand around Gertz's neck but failed to prevent most of the poison, believed to have been Prusic acid, from passing down his throat. Within a few seconds, Gertz collapsed. He died in Mercer's hospital a few minutes later. On hearing Gertz was dead, Isholt Stewart wrote in her diary, I often dream about Major Gertz. I barely knew him at all, but somehow he was the only one who really knew me. No voice has ever caressed my ears like his, which I will never hear again, and no smile has so unveiled me. Isholt and Francis later formally separated. In Francis Stewart's autobiography, he said he couldn't compete with the love Isholt had for the ghost of Hermann Gertz. Gertz's funeral was held in the grounds of Dean's Grange Cemetery in South Dublin. The most notable feature in many of the newspaper reports was the large involvement of women at the funeral. In 1974, his remains were exhumed from Dean's Grange and moved to the German military cemetery in Glen Cree, County Wicklow, which is only a short walk from Lark House. So here I am in the German military cemetery in Glen Cree in uh, Wicklow. There's a lovely stream right next to it. And he's got a headstone that uh, says Major on it. I'm just walking up to his headstone now. And he's at the back, I think. And yeah, there he is. There his bones still lie, buried in the ground of the country he'd rather die than leave. This has been a story for yarnpodcast.com, written and narrated by John Roach, with Liam Murphy as Herman Gertz, and the voices of Hazel Fahey, Dermot Tobin, Niall O'Sheel, Dahi Maksuvna, Mary Luby, Alan Newsom, and Dermot Byrne. Special thanks to Dermot Tobin, Lucy Newsom, and Kieran Dunphy. <laughs>